Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books and Public Policy podcast. I am Tevi Troy, a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, and the book this week is Deadly Choices, How the Anti-Vaccine Movement Threatens Us All by Dr. Paul Offit. I recently had the opportunity to have dinner with Dr. Offit and told him about the podcast and asked him to join us. And what you're about to hear is the results of our fascinating interview on the anti-vaccine movement and the danger it presents to us all. So enjoy the podcast. I'm here today with Dr. Paul Offit, the author of Deadly Choices, How the Anti-Vaccine Movement Threatens Us All. Dr. Offit is a doctor in uh, Philadelphia at Children's Hospital and has written a very interesting book about the kind of wars about vaccines, about whether they're safe, whether they're not safe. He has a very clear view on it that, that they are safe. Um, and not only are they safe, they are life-saving, and he's going to talk about it. So without any further ado, well, welcome to the program, Dr. Offit. Thank you. Um, I'd love to talk about the book, but first I'd love if you could tell us just a little bit about yourself. Um, I was born and raised in Baltimore, Maryland. Uh, my father was a shirt manufacturer. My mother worked at home. The, um, I have a brother and sister. My sister lives in London, my brother in New York. And um, the, I guess I, I, uh, the events of my early life that sort of shaped my later life, probably the biggest was that um, I was uh, hospitalized for a number of weeks with uh, – following a club foot repair in a chronic care facility in Baltimore and um, was on a ward with about 20 children, all of whom had been suffering from polio. And that image, I guess, never left me. I mean, I grew up in the 50s and 60s, so I experienced most of these vaccine-preventable diseases and saw them, so I'm compelled by them. Uh, and medical school and college, and where, where, can you talk a little bit about right. that? Right. So I went to medical school, in, uh, went to college in Boston, medical school in Baltimore, um, and then trained in uh, pediatrics in Pittsburgh in pediatric infectious diseases at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And I've been, for the most part, with the exception of a brief sojourn at Stanford to, to uh, carry on research there, have been at, at uh, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine ever since. Right. You know, when people say uh, they went to college in New Haven, they usually mean Yale. When you say you went to college in Boston, do you mean Harvard? No, no I don't actually. I, want, I mean Tufts, actually, is what I mean. Okay, um, okay great. Um, so you talked a little bit about how you came to write the book in, in terms of uh, being at a ward and seeing a lot of six children, but can you talk about specifically this book and how it, how it came about? Yeah, yeah, we have over the last, you know, 10 years or so in our hospital seen children come in suffering and dying uh, from vaccine-preventable diseases. We, within the past year, saw a child who died of whooping cough, uh, a disease that could have been prevented had uh, had the mother and father in the home been vaccinated. She was only two months old. We've seen children die of chickenpox in this hospital. We've seen children when in the in the early 90s during an epidemic that centered on a religious group that chose not to vaccinate their children. We saw nine children in the city die of, of measles, uh, several of whom died in this hospital. And you're powerless. You know, you, you watch these kids come in with these infections and you try the best you can to support them, meaning with things like, you know, ventilators and heart-lung machines. But 
but medicine has limits, and, and we, you know, despite, I think, heroic efforts, were unable to save their lives, which, you know, in medicine is always to some extent true. Medicine has limits, but this isn't one of them. This is an example of something we could have easily and safely prevented, and, and parents chose not to do it. We're seeing now over the last 10 years more outbreaks of diseases like whooping cough and measles and mumps and bacterial meningitis because parents are making this choice. It's unconscionable. The purpose of the book is to sound the bell. Yeah, I think you're making a really interesting point that a lot of people don't know, and I just want to clarify it since you're the, the MD and I am not, which is um, some of these diseases, some of these terrible, deadly diseases are really not treatable. They are preventable, but not treatable or curable under modern medicine. Is that accurate? That's accurate. I, you know, for you know, we had, we've had several children, three children, die in the Philadelphia area of bacterial meningitis, and everybody assumes that that's treatable. And it is treatable if you get it early enough, but if you don't get it early enough, what invariably happens is that children either have permanent uh, sequelae from those from that infection, you know, sequelae, neurological sequelae, or um, or they die. And, and, you know, so medicine has, it's always better to prevent something than to try and treat it. And for viruses, they're really, for viruses like measles or mumps, there really is no treatment. So, so really all you can do is prevent it, but we can prevent it, and we, therefore we should prevent it. Right. Uh, it's almost like uh, parents are operating under this the, the theory of the antibiotic that, you know, I'll just go get an antibiotic, I'll be fine. As you're saying, these are viral infections, and antibiotics have no impact on them, and we don't have any treatments that will cure them. That's exactly right. All we have is supportive measures, and they're limited. Right. So, I mean, obviously, it's, it's clear at this point what the book is um, is generally about. But can you talk a little bit about the argument of the book and how you run through it and how, how you did the research? Yeah, it's sort of actually going back to, to sort of the 1800s in England, where the first anti-vaccine movement was born. And I guess that if there's anything that surprised me in the book, it's that there's really nothing new in it in the sense that this has <laughs> all happened before, which is. You know, there was in, in the 18, the, the Jenner, Edward Jenner made the first vaccine. It prevented smallpox. He did it in the late 1700s. By the early 1800s, there were cartoons and newspapers clearly showing that people were scared of the vaccine. They were scared that, that, uh, the vaccine was going to turn them into cows and, and because it was derived from a cowpox virus. And when I first started looking at this, I thought maybe it was just these cartoons were an expression of, the, the fear of the source or purity of the vaccine. But in fact, people really were scared of that vaccines were going to turn them into cows. They complained that their children were lowing and browsing in the field, that they were chewing their food more slowly, i.e. developing these more bovine characteristics, which, you know, seems silly on its face. Today, although I would argue it's no more biologically sound than the notion that vaccines cause autism. It's just that when we make these cases today, it's much sounds much more scientific. But but what happened? Right, and maybe no wackier than bleeding people to cure them, right? Exactly right. And 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 so in the mid 1800s, there was there was the the first of the compulsory vaccination laws, which really spurned a a, a, a very active, effective anti-vaccine movement that culminated in the late 1800s with something called the conscientious objector law, which it's actually the first time the term conscientious objector was, was used. It actually related to, to the anti-vaccine movement. It was then later applied to a choice not to fight in wars. But So in the 1890s, then a, a British citizen could simply sign a form saying they didn't want to get the smallpox vaccine. It was their choice, essentially, to um, suffer and die from that infection, and that's exactly what happened. I mean, by the late 1800s, England became the epicenter in, in, in Western Europe of, of smallpox because they had such an anti-vaccine movement. And I think the same thing's happening here in the United States. Here, you know, we have religious exemptions, we have philosophical exemptions to vaccines. That's, that's allowed for an erosion in vaccine rates and thus uh, an outbreak of, of no, a number of these vaccine-preventable diseases. Um, 
So what what have you found thus far has been the uh, reaction to the book? It's been very positive. I think certainly um, scientists and, and clinicians uh, appreciate that uh, a warning bell has been sounded by the book, and, and a lot of parents also email me and, and, and appreciate the book. So I think I think you know it's it was time that somebody sort of took a very firm stand on the fact that this isn't okay. You know, we're we're, we're America, as Americans, I think one of our many strengths is we're extremely open-minded to a variety of attitudes and beliefs, and I think that's great. Um, but what's happened here is, you know, the notion of whether or not vaccines are of value is not is not a, a belief system. It's a it's a it's a notion, and it's like any more than the theory of evolution is a belief system, or the theory of uh, gravity, or the germ theory. <laughs> These aren't belief systems. I mean, there's there's tremendous this mountain of science that supports, you know, the notion that gravity is real, that evolution is real, you know, that the germ theory is not a theory, but in fact, specific germs do cause specific disease. That's true here too. Vaccines sit on a mountain of evidence of safety and efficacy. If you, if, when, when they're brought into society, it lessens the, the, the infections. When they're taken out of society, you see the infections come back. This has happened over and over again. It's not. When people say, I believe in vaccines or I don't believe in vaccines, you just shudder it's because it has nothing to do with belief. You know, one thing I found really interesting on that point in your book is that there have been real problems with vaccines in the past. The Cutter incident, for example, uh, where, where um, there was a, a problematic polio vaccine, and that has not led to this massive fear. But the fake problems, the, the, the autism, the things that really are not linked to vaccines have led to the fear. Can you talk a little bit about that I think it, describe it, the two incidents? Yeah, it, it's, it, I think it's reflective of the time. So there was actually in the late 1940s, there was a yellow fever vaccine given to the American military that was stabilized, if you will, with human serum at a time when we didn't really understand hepatitis viruses or how they were transmitted. And as a consequence, several of the donors uh, of their serum for that vaccine had hepatitis B. And so inadvertently, 330,000 or unknowingly, 330,000 American uh, uh, servicemen were inoculated with a vaccine that contained live hepatitis B virus, and 65 died from that, didn't create an anti-vaccine movement. In the mid-1950s, associated with Jonas Salk's polio vaccine, and, and Jonas Salk took polio, a virus, grew it up in cells in the laboratory, uh, purified it, and, and then completely killed it with uh, a chemical called formaldehyde. Uh, one of the companies that made that vaccine, that when licensed in 1955, made it badly. And as a consequence, about two, uh, 120,000 children were inoculated with live, fully virulent polio virus. I mean, when that company, Cutter Laboratories of Berkeley, California, failed to adequately inactivate the vaccine, and that caused uh, uh, tens of thousands of cases of something called abortive polio, meaning short-lived polio. It caused 200 children to be permanently and severely paralyzed, and it caused 10 children to die. I, I argue it's probably one of the worst biological disasters in this world's history, and yet it didn't give rise to an anti-vaccine movement because at the time in the 1950s or 40s, people believed that pharmaceutical companies were trying to get it right, that that uh, that the doctors and, and that worked with those companies were trying to get it right, that the, the, the regulatory agencies were trying to get it right, that you know that this was all a process of evolution, which was true. Um, now we're much more cynical, much more litigious, and so we were very quick to believe that vaccines cause harm, even though at this point, yeah, one would argue vaccines are enormously safe. All those early sort of the pain that invariably comes with medical evolution, I think we've already paid that price and, and really don't pay it anymore. Vaccines are remarkably safe. In fact, I would argue vaccines are actually the safest, best-tested things we put in our bodies, safer than antibiotics, safer than vitamins. 
Wow, that is, that is a um, that is a strong statement and, and backed up by the facts. Um, you, know, you mentioned um, Jonas Salk. We talked about the, the polio vaccine. Uh, when you and I uh, fortuitously had dinner a few weeks ago, we talked a little about um, Salk and his rival Albert Sabin and how there was a lot of tension between them. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, they, they both had dramatically different ideas as to how to make a vaccine. Salk believed that you could take a polio virus and completely inactivate it, kill it, and that, that you could induce a long-term immunity by doing that. Uh, nobody else really thought that at the time. They thought the only two, two ways in which you could get long-term immunity to polio, which was either to suffer natural infection or to be inoculated with a vaccine similar to what Albert Sabin made, which was a live, weakened form of the virus. And, and that won out. I mean, ultimately, uh, in the United States anyway, Salk's vaccine was introduced in 1955, Sabin's in 1962, but Sabin's replaced Salk's, this you know, weakened form of the virus. And we used that really up until 1998, but knew really for years that that, that vaccine, although clearly eliminated polio from the United States, which was a remarkable achievement, did, could itself cause polio. I mean, Albert Sabin's live weakened polio virus vaccine caused polio reproducibly in six to eight children every year in the United States, even after we'd eliminated natural polio. And that was a, um, you know, a consequence that we were unwilling to, to accept anymore by 1998. So in the, in the end, looking back, Salk was right. His was the better, safer vaccine. Yeah, but this notion of the live, weakened vaccine is still something that haunts people or proponents of the vaccine. I, I remember with the, uh, the flu vaccine a few years ago, uh, you had Bill Maher get up there on his TV show and irresponsibly say, I'm not putting a live, uh, live virus into my arm. Um, and you know, that, that was inaccurate regarding that particular shot, but it, you know, he, a lot of people hear his show. Right, Bill Maher should stick to comedy uh, and, and probably not give healthcare <laughs> advice. I mean, so there's two flu vaccines. One of them is a, a killed virus that's given as a shot. The second one is a live weakened virus that's given as a nasal spray. It, I should point out that the only virus, vaccine virus, live weakened vaccine virus that ever showed the, the ability to revert back to a virus that could cause disease, as was true with Albert Sabin's polio vaccine, no other vaccine does that. I mean, measles, mumps, German measles, chicken pox, um, the, the live attenuated nasal spray, flu vaccine, none of those have the capacity to cause full-fledged disease as that oral polio vaccine did. So they, they shouldn't all be lumped together. Mar gave bad advice, really bad advice. I mean, you know, we know that in April 2009, a novel form of, of flu virus called, you know, H1N1 2009 came in. It, it affected, infected 47 million Americans. It caused about 250,000 to be hospitalized. It caused 12,000 to die, 1,100 of whom were children. I mean, that's 10 times more children than typically die during during a flu season, 10 times more. We had five children die in our hospital last year from, from that virus, and um, every one of them could have been saved had they gotten the vaccine. So if any one of them listened to Bill Maher, that, that advice would have cost their child their life. Um, it, but it shows how we, we sort of listen to celebrities as if they have some special knowledge about, about all things medical, although I don't understand how one would assume that. Yeah, let, let's talk about this a little more. You said Bill Maher should stick to comedy. I mean, uh, there are others who should uh, stick to their day jobs, as it were. Sure. I mean, you know, Jane McCarthy and is you know is a mother of a child with autism who believes that autism, her child's autism, was caused by vaccines, uh, and it clearly wasn't. I mean, we now know from study after study after study that vaccines don't cause autism. But she, you know, she's done a lot of harm. You know, and it's 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 ironic actually. I mean, he's, she's a woman who clearly loves her son and wants to do well by him, and and I think by extension. 
intervention wants to help other children with autism and what she proceeds to do is is a tremendous amount of harm towards children with autism by scaring parents of children with autism so that when they have their next child or when they have that child they they choose not to vaccinate and putting putting them at unnecessary risk i mean it doesn't you know not vaccinating doesn't lessen your risk of autism it only increases your risk of getting vaccine preventable diseases which are starting to come back so she's done a lot of harm to children in the United States. I mean, in her defense, I think she does it in the name of, of trying to do good, but it's, she does the opposite. And, and, you know, because she's the mother of a child with autism, doesn't make her an autism expert. It makes her an expert in her child, any more than, than someone who's a mother of a child with diabetes knows everything there is to know about, about the, 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 the cutting-edge diabetes research. I mean, that's why you should... Go to the experts for these sort of things. One, one quick story. I remember, I remember watching Larry King Live, and, and Jenny McCarthy was on, and Holly Robinson Pete, who's the wife of Rodney Pete, and herself an actress, and then a non-celebrity mother were on that show. And and you know, and Larry King looked at Johnny McCarthy and said, "What do you think causes autism?" Looks at Holly Robinson Pete and says, "What do you think causes autism?" And looks at the, the non-celebrity mother and asks her, "And you're thinking, why don't you get an autism expert on the show?" And he asked them, "Somebody does this for for a living, you know that." is involved in the research and the studies. Uh, get those people. There's plenty of them. Why don't you get them on the show? Uh, perhaps they're not as attractive as uh, Ms. Pete and Ms. McCarthy, is uh, one guess. Um, so, uh, I mean, I, I think you actually were quite generous to Ms. McCarthy, a, a generosity that um, I'd say she has probably not reciprocated, right? I mean, haven't you been subject to a lot of uh, criticism and assaults by people who um, are on her side of the argument? Yes, um, I think that um, that's, I guess, to be anticipated in the sense that um, the movement, the notion that vaccines cause autism is wrong. So you've, you've tried to build a movement then that is not built on science. So, so if you don't have the science on your side, then you have to go to plan B, which I guess <laughs> the law, there's an old legal aphorism that when, you know, when the law is on your side, argue the law, when the uh, science is on your side, argue the science, you know, when neither is on your side, attack the witness. So that's where they're at. I mean, they basically... Um, they say, well, of course, he would say that he's the co-inventor of a vaccine. I mean, as if that's, you know, why I invented the vaccine, so that I could lie about vaccine safety, whereas the reason I invented the vaccine so was so that children would be spared from rotavirus, which is a disease that kills 2,000 children a day in this world. So, but, but you know, I, I, it sort of, I, it doesn't really bother me that much. I, I, I know where it's coming from, and I think it's just a way of trying to get the media to focus off the fact that there's not one shred of science to support their, their hypothesis. And so we, we engage in this kind of straw man argument about, you know, what are my influences, what's motivating me to do what I do, and, and it's just a complete waste of time. And it, it, it's, it's frankly the lowest form of debate. I mean, it's maybe it's one step above name-calling in, in the world of debate, and it amazes me to the degree that uh, the media, in any sense, participates in it. No, well, there actually has been some name-calling, right, towards you, so they have gotten to the lowest form as well. Right, exactly. Uh, but, but again, I think you're, uh, you're being uh, quite generous towards, towards your critics. Um, w- one story and picture that really jumped out at me in, in the book was this picture of the Raggedy Ann doll, this sort of famous and iconic doll that uh, you say was uh, created as a result of a, a, somebody who had a bad reaction to a vaccine. Can you talk about that story? Yeah, actually, in, in Art Allen's book, Vaccine, is, is where I first read that, so he's the one that alerted me to that association. But surprise. 
surprise me. It, it's uh, there was a cartoonist in New York City in the in the early 1900s whose name was Johnny Gruel, and he um, he had a daughter Marcella who died of what sounded like from the death certificate, according to to Art Allen in his book Vaccine. Um, he, he what uh, sounded like a congenital heart defect, but the father didn't see it that way. The father knew the child had recently received a smallpox vaccine, and he believed that his daughter Marcella had died because of that vaccine and created this doll, which we now call Raggedy Ann, in her honor. So. So that 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 doll, Raggedy Ann, uh, served as an icon for uh, for the anti-vaccine movement. In fact, probably uh, one of the, uh, the the principal spokespersons for the anti-vaccine movement, a woman named Barbara Lowe Fisher, who had something called the National Info- Vaccine Information Center, which I think is more, more more accurately called the National Vaccine Misinformation Center. If you go <laughs> into her office, she's got a picture of Raggedy Ann above her, right on her wall. Um, I'll never look at the doll the same way again. Um, are, is your side of the argument on the move, would you say? I mean, you've got uh, Andrew Wakefield was just recently discredited in a very public way. Uh, Seth Manukin's book, The Panic Virus, is out. Your book is out. Um, last week uh, we interviewed uh, Bob Goldberg on the podcast with his book, Tabloid Medicine, which has a section on uh, your side of the vaccine argument. And I say your side as if they're you know, they're, they're completely equivalent. Obviously, you're saying that they're, they're not. But um, do, do you think you guys are on the move? Oh, yeah, uh, definitely. I mean, if you look, if you look over the way Last ten years, the media, mainstream media, has completely turned around on this story. I mean, you know, the New York Times Sunday Magazine had a piece called uh, "The Not So Crackpot Vaccine Autism Theory." Um, they would never carry a piece like that today. I mean, it, it's it, similarly the Los Angeles Times had a writer, uh, Myron Levin, who who uh, who constantly trumpeted the notion that vaccines cause autism. And now you have a guy named Ron Lynn who who talks about pertussis or whooping cough outbreak in California and how awful it is that people aren't getting vaccinated because of this. So the media has turned even entertainment television largely doesn't do this kind of story anymore. The Met Odds on the Dr. Oz show did one within the last few weeks, but for the most part, it's even that's gone. I mean, you know, Oprah doesn't do this show and this kind of show anymore. Larry King doesn't do this kind of show anymore. I think even Jenny McCarthy started to back away from this story. So but that said, I think the, the um there's been a tremendous amount of damage that was done by what's happened over the last ten decades, such that, you know, now it's estimated um, that about four out of every ten parents are choosing to to delay or withhold uh, one or more vaccines, and so that's been the fallout. Yeah, um, that th- th- that fallout is really serious and, and quite frightening. Um, but w- one of the things you mentioned is is Dr. Oz and um, you know Jenny McCarthy. Okay, you say she's just a celebrity; she doesn't know anything. But Dr. Oz is an MD. I mean, can, can you talk about? His, uh, what he's been saying on it and his impact on the debate? Yeah, he's he's probably been the most disappointing. I mean, this is a smart guy. He you know he he went to the University of Pennsylvania Medical School, which is where I am. I mean, he very well could have been in the medical school class when I was teaching vaccines back in the early nineties. Um, he he's you know he's a graduate of the uh, he got his MBA here at Wharton. He then went to Columbia University you know, where he rose through the ranks from assistant to associate to full professor in, in cardiovascular surgery. He's a, he's a talented surgeon and, and, and brilliant man who then, you know, sort of, you know, I guess with his you know, constant appearances on Oprah, ultimately was given his own show, and now he's he's a woo-meister. You know, he, he talks uh, a lot about alternative medicine and, and sort of, you know, psychics, and, and I don't know what happened to him. It, I guess, you know, maybe I shouldn't be too critical because we could all lose our minds at some point because I feel like this is what's <laughs> happened. He's just sort of gone over to this side of, of, of non-science or arguably anti-science, and he did a show recently, you know, that uh, you know where he made it 
very unclear as to whether or not vaccines cause autism. And again, all that show is going to do is scare people unnecessarily, cause them to make bad choices, and potentially hurt their children. And I'll give you a, a specific example of that. I was on service just a, a couple weeks ago. There was a child who came into this hospital who was five years old um, whose mother had chosen not to vaccinate him against flu. Now, he, she had vaccinated this boy against everything else, including last year she gave him the seasonal flu vaccine, but she didn't give him the, the swine flu vaccine, which was a separate shot. Last year, she didn't give him the seasonal flu vaccine. This year, because it contains swine flu. Why didn't she give that shot? Because she went onto the Internet and found this Washington Redskin cheerleader who claimed to have been permanently neurologically damaged by that vaccine. It was a complete hoax, and I think inside the edition, it actually showed it to be a hoax. But that's why she made that choice. The child comes into this hospital, is on a ventilator, then an oscillator, then a heart-lung machine for two weeks, and he almost died. I mean, that decision almost killed her child. And why did she make it? Because she saw a Washington Redskins cheerleader say that, you know, that they claim that the vaccine had caused permanent harm. It's, it is hard to watch. It really is hard to watch. Yeah, I mean, I mentioned Bob Goldberg, whom I know you know, um, said that has this argument in tabloid medicine that the Internet kind of creates an equivalence of voices between scientific experts and non-scientific experts. Um, and, and they sound equal um, when, when you're on the Internet. But what you're saying is even more pernicious, that the celebrities get more authority and, and more trust than non-celebrities, even if the celebrities aren't scientific experts. Yeah, and it surprises me, actually. I mean, if, you, if you go back and you look into the, into the mid-1800s and, and try and answer the question, who was it that was choosing not to vaccine, get vaccines? It was generally the, the less educated, less well-served population, artisans, laborers. If you look at who, who's making that choice now, it's the opposite. It's, it's a uh, upper middle class, Caucasian, uh, always college educated, often graduate school educated, who has a professional job, a job where they control things. You would think that in that constant battle that we have between our fear and our reason, that, that these would be the people who most likely would allow their reason to conquer their fear, and that when they go on the Internet and they look at these various sites, would be more apt to figure out which ones are science-based and accurate, and which ones are fear-mongering. But that's not true. In fact, frankly, I think it's easy enough to defend the thing with these two sites. The ones that are accurate are the ones that don't advertise treatments for autism or, you know, cures for ways that you can prolong your life or, you know, or, 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 or enhance your memory or whatever it is. I mean, it's, it's the ones that are not advertising products. It's pretty simple to me, but, but apparently not, and that's surprising to me. Yeah, didn't, didn't Jenny McCarthy claim that she cured her son's autism, which is not scientifically possible at this point? Right. It's, it's unclear what Jenny McCarthy's story is. It's not clear he actually has autism. Um, there's this, this sort of Landau. Well, then it's easy to cure. It's this so-called, I think, Landau-Kleffler syndrome is what people are supposing. But, I, I mean, I don't know her son's history. I haven't seen his record or anything, so I can't really comment. It's just, but I think it's and, – and it should be noted, actually, that – Mild forms of autism or autism spectrum disorder are diagnosed often in the two to five year old, you know, where the child ends up being pretty much fine. I mean, it, it's, I have had a personal experience where I can tell you that was true, that uh, the, it's, it's often overdiagnosed and then the child ends up being just fine. So, I mean, it's not, um, I think, I mean, true, someone who is, is truly on, you know, has moderate to severe autism, um, uh, the, you know, those, it's, it's, it's not, they're not going to be Jenny McCarthy's child. Yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned overdiagnosis. Isn't that one of the theories for why there's been an increase in autism? It's not necessarily, I mean, it's not, it's not because of vaccine problems, but because of increased diagnosis, in, increased, and, and not through nefarious reasons, but just more knowledge of the disease and, and what it does. Right, so, so the question is, is there a quote-unquote an epidemic? I, I think... 
Um, certainly in the mid of autism. Yeah, of, sorry, of autism. I mean, clearly, clearly uh, in the mid 1990s, the so-called Diagnostic Statistical Manual that, that developmentalists and neurologists and psychiatrists used to make the diagnoses, the what used to be called autism became autism spectrum disorder. So much more subtle forms of language or speech or communication uh, or behavior were included in that spectrum. Uh, someone who would not have been called that before. Clearly, there's increased awareness. There's there's financial. Um, uh, motivation really to make that diagnosis and that it, it, when the clinician makes it, it does qualify you for services you wouldn't get otherwise. So there's a lot of reasons that, that we have an increase in the instance. There may be a real increase. I, that is possible. I mean, but uh, obviously vaccines aren't the reason. Yeah, I think Seth Mnookin says that even accounting for the expanded diagnosis and the expanded spectrum, there has been an increase, but it, but it is not uh, the vaccines that's the reason, but it's unclear what the reason is. And he makes the argument, which is interesting, that perhaps we should have spent money on on uh, tests and studies that have determined what the real reason for the increase in autism is rather than wasting all this money on vaccine studies that over and over again prove the same point that they're safe. Well, I think the good news is we, we I agree with Seth on that. I, I think the, the good news is there are groups like the Simon Foundation, Autism Science Foundation, and NIH, which funds the groups that are interested in looking at, you know, what are the genes that are more likely to be associated or found in children with autism spectrum disorder, what proteins of those genes make, when do they make them, are there, you know, therapies that could intervene early on. And actually, there's a tremendous amount of interesting research on this. You just never hear about it because I think the anti-vaccine people have taken this autism story hostage, uh, much to the detriment of children with autism. Yeah, now, it seems to me that there is an entity that should be fighting this, a, a government entity, that, um, and it's the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control. Uh, can you talk about their efforts? And I know you and I both think that they've not been as effective as they should be. Yeah, I think they could be braver in this. I mean, certainly, um, you know, if you talk to people who, who are involved in education at the CDC, they very much care and are trying to do the right thing, but they do get money from Congress, and, and, and they're, I think they are, to some extent, aware of that and, and don't want to make a statement that would be considered too strong. So they end up coming, in, in the interest, I think, of trying to be open-minded, they end up co not coming down as firmly as they should on the fact that clearly there's not a shred of evidence that, that supports this and this notion that vaccines cause autism. They could be braver. I think the American Academy of Pediatrics could be braver too. I think it ends up leaving it to sort of individuals to, to do this, and, and you know, and that's I think that puts those individuals in a, in a tougher spot. Uh, you say the American Academy of Pediatrics could be braver. I assume you are a member of that academy. Is, is are there things that can be done within the organization to increase their boldness on the subject? Yeah, I, I, sure. I mean, I think they formed something called the Immunization Alliance, which was a, a, an attempt to try and get it as a strong, clear voice out there. But, you know, it's as invariably true when you have sort of a large committee, everybody has to agree to the language and it ends up getting much more watered down. And, and frankly, I think in some ways it is better for an individual like Seth Manukin or me or whomever to stand up because it can be a single, strong, clearer voice than when it comes out of a, a group. Right. Now, Manukin's a journalist and Goldberg's a journalist, but you're the you're, you're the number one MD on this, um, you know, arguing for the safety of vaccines. Um, who are some of the? Do you have other colleagues who are kind of fighting this fight, or are you the lightning rod and, and sole advocate here? 
No, I think there are other people that stand up. I, I mean, I think I tend to be the, the biggest lightning rod. I mean, because I think in many ways, I, for the anti-vaccine person, I fulfill their, I'm the perfect storm in the sense that, or at least I, I represent their their conspiracy theory, which is that, you know, that it's just it's a big conspiracy to hide the truth that, you know, the pharmaceutical companies, the medical establishment, the government are all in conspiracy to hide the truth. I mean, I've been on CDC advisory committees. I'm still on, you know, at least working groups for the CDC advisory committees. I am the co-invention of a vaccine, so there it is. I'm the perfect uh, emblem of the uh, of this conspiracy. I mean, which is ironic to me because you know I spent 25 years working on a, a vaccine that you know can prevent this 2,000 deaths a day. I mean, the vaccine is the rotavirus vaccine is now in you know Mali and Ghana, Bangladesh and Vietnam and Nicaragua. It's it's re- decreased the incidence of hospitalization in the United States 80 to 90 percent. You know, in, in in a better world, I'm a hero, but. Uh, in this world, I'm, you know, somebody to be, at least for a small segment of the population, to be loathed for developing a vaccine that, that saves children. I don't get it. But but in any case, and it's illogical anyway, that I would work for 25 years to, to develop a vaccine that saves children so that I can, you know, make money so that I can lie about vaccine safety so that I can hurt children. I mean, doesn't that make little logical sense? But such as life. But but there are there are some people that did say I mean you think Deb Wexler, Stan Plotkin, Luke Cooper, Sam Katz, I mean there are people that, that, that stand up. But it is it's hard to stand up. I mean when you get hate mail and you get the occasional death threat, um, you know, and you're you're vilified on certain websites. It is it is and you're sued a lot, which you know has happened to me just to kind of try and shut me up. It's it is wearing. I mean you have to really be committed to this to do it. Yeah, I mean, the, the vilification of Dr. Offit would lead one to think that, you know, you've got someone with fangs and, uh, you know, these uh, mean red eyes or, or, you know, whatever. You'll be able to see on the website, newbooksinpublicpolicy.com, newbooksinpublicpolicy.com, and we're going to have a picture of, of Dr. Offit, and he is a very innocuous-looking, uh, handsome fellow, and, uh, you know, I've met with him, and he's a genial fellow, as you will meet. So he's not the caricature that you read about in some places on the Internet. Um, do you have another book uh, in mind, or what, do you know what your next book is going to be? I do. I, I think I'd like to write a book about alternative medicine, and I think the subtitle would be something like How Alternative Medicine Hurts Us and Why We Let It Happen, and I, the, the working title right now is uh, Killing Them Softly. Oh, that's a great working title, um, and obviously I would love to have you back on the podcast uh, w- once that comes out. Um, we have a uh, final question here on New Books and Public Policy every week. Uh, since it's always policy books, I ask the authors, if you were czar for a day, what policy would you implement based on uh, what, what you've learned from writing your book? So, Dr. Offit, if you were czar for a day, czar Offit instead of Dr. Offit, what would you do? Well, I, th- I think that um – what we're suffering is, is an erosion in, in, in vaccine rates that's causing children to be hospitalized and occasionally die. So, so what changes that? The question is what changes that? So, I mean, there are a few things that could change that. It could, we could have more suffering and, and hospitalization. We could have more emotional diseases like polio or diphtheria come back. I think that would change people's mind. I think that would really frighten people enough that their fear of vaccines would now be overcome by their fear of disease, which is where we were, you know, 50 years ago. But but obviously, one doesn't want it to come to that. The second way that you could change this is you could make a policy where it makes it much tougher to to get religious exemptions or much tougher to get philosophical exemptions. I mean, religious exemptions, when you think about them, are a little silly. I mean, where where the first vaccine was Jenner's vaccine in 1796. I mean, the New Testament was written in 100 A.D. and the Old Testament were between 1400 and 400 B.C. Then the Koran in 600 A.D. Those are all centuries before uh, before the vaccines, and, and not surprisingly, never mentioned vaccines. So where is it in these major texts 
that you, that says you shouldn't get vaccinated. So I don't quite even understand the basis of religious exemptions. And then philosophical exemptions also make no sense in the sense that it's not a philosophy. I mean, you know, phyla, love, sophos, wisdom. Where's the wisdom in saying that vaccines are more dangerous than uh, than not? And, and that so that we bend over backwards to try and be open-minded. That is a little silly to me, but. But on the other hand, I think when you try and compel a large number of citizens to get vaccines, you have to have some pop-off valve, and that's the valve. What I'd, in a better world, what I'd love to see happen is I'd love to see us uh, as, as see ourselves as, as a whole, which is, is what we are. I mean, I remember sitting next to a, a child in the ninth grade who had leukemia, and he eventually died in my class at, in, in high school in Baltimore. And... Um, I could no more imagine sitting next to him being unvaccinated, knowing that I would was putting him at risk of, of vaccine preventable diseases than, than, than the man in the moon. I, I can't see how one could do that. And, and there are 500,000 people in the United States who can't be vaccinated, I mean, who depend on those around them to be protected. Otherwise, they're the ones who are most likely to suffer and die. And, and we, I just, I know we have this in us, this sort of, this feeling to our fellow man. I think people that, that ran toward the shots in Tucson or that ran toward those collapsing buildings in New York in the World Trade Center, they, they had an instinct to their fellow man, and I know it's in us. I mean, when the World Trade Center buildings collapsed, I mean, we all hugged each other and looked at each other as one. I mean, we were united in our grief because, because we all suffered that. And, and I think we're all suffering this. I just wish there was some way that we could find the best way to appeal to that instinct. So maybe there's a policy in there somewhere where we, you know, sort of the Good Samaritan policy or something that helps us to realize that. I don't know. Cool. That's a very thoughtful uh, answer, and I, I appreciate you um, put, putting in the time to think of the answer, to putting the time in the podcast, and for writing the book. So thank you very much, and we look forward to having you on with your next book as well. Thank you, Toby. I appreciate it. You've just been listening to an interview with Dr. Paul Offit, the author of Deadly Choices. Join us next week on New Books in Public Policy. That is relevant to the public policy debates of today. I'm Tevi Troy, your host, and I look forward to having you join us again at New Books in Public Policy. Thank you.